Romans chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. We'll read the first three verses. Don't forget, men, if you're interested, there's basketball after uh, our study tonight. And, and um, if you haven't signed a blue card yet, those are available to you. There's, um, that process continues throughout this whole month of, <clears throat> pardon me, of January. Let me read you the first three verses of Romans chapter 2. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge for and whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? That's as far, actually, we, we won't work our way all through that tonight. Um, and, and I think you'll understand why in a minute. But um, in one sense, I'm not real sure why I've chosen tonight to say what I'm about to say. Um, but in another sense, I know exactly the reason I uh, am chosen tonight to say what I say. In fact, there's a couple of three reasons. But I, I want you to bear with me just for a moment before we get ourselves into the text itself. Um, I, I think most of you realize, being the uh, <clears throat> bright, intelligent folk that you are, most of you realize that a, a, a large percentage of America has um, has adopted um, not only a non-Christian position, but a distinctly anti-Christian position uh, and agenda. For instance, the uh, the national media would be a a good example of of what you see uh, taking place in our culture. Um, there is indeed uh, at least many would call a culture war, which is nothing really new for the Christian church. Um, about a year ago, I guess it was a year ago, the, um, a, a major culture battle took place in what uh, was known as uh, impeachment hearings, which um, I want to suggest to you, which uh, was really a referendum on the culture war. What began as uh, downright outrage over immorality and deception and abuse of power uh, ended rather abruptly without uh, no, without any punishment or in, not even a censure. And what I want to suggest to you is that the culture war, at least as we know it, uh, is now over. And the impeachment process um, gave us a very clear indication as to where our culture stands. And I, I think we discovered that our culture stands steadfastly opposed to any kind of biblical morality. Um, the culture war is over, and we lost. But, but don't let that uh, depress you, folks. Um, the first century Christian church um, confronted a much more antagonistic culture than we do. Uh, Christianity 
has always been an alien in the culture in which it found itself. But uh, back in the first century, the Christianity of the first century set that culture on its ear, turned it upside down. How did, it, how did, how did they do it 2,000 years ago? Well, what I want you to see, we're going to come back to Romans 2, but I want you to see a text that, um, that you've heard before. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to bounce around some tonight, so I hope you can lick your fingers and follow. Um, but I want to read to you 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 3. Familiar text, 2 Corinthians 10, 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself, exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. L let me underscore just three words in those, things that kind of stood out for me and I hope for you. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity. The three words is argument and knowledge of God and thought. What I, what I want to suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, is, is that the, the way that the early church set its culture on its ear is something that will, in the, in the terms of this text, we'll call it knowledge of God. But uh, may, may I hasten to say that there is a real danger in this, this, this idea of knowledge of God. Now, stay with me. I, I know that I'm going to bounce a little bit here, but I, I hope to make it clear before I quit. You know, ladies and gentlemen, what we have to offer our culture is far better. I, I want to tell you a story, and I hope I hadn't told this story here before, but um, I forget where I tell my stories, but I was on the Stairmaster um, uh, one day, and there were two guys, did I tell you the story of the two guys that were, I did tell you that one? Was that in this church? David, you're the only one that's nodding your head. The rest of them were asleep. Well, let me, let me t I'm, I'm trying to own some of my own, let, let me just own it for a second time then. There, were, there was a guy on the Stairmaster next to me. I told it, Andy, you remember? No, I've heard it all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you haven't. This is very new. <laughs> Tape it. <laughs> well, this guy was next to me, and he was uh, stairmastering, as I was, and, you know, uh, a buddy walked up who was standing on the floor, and we were up there doing, doing the stairmaster going crazy, and so this other guy walked up, and, and of course, they're talking, and, and you can't help but overhear the conversation. You just can't miss it. And, uh, I mean, and they weren't trying to hide anything they were saying. And, and very frankly, what they were saying was not real um, clean. And they were talking about, this guy on, on, the, on the Stairmaster uh, was talking about a woman that he knew, I think she lived in Milwaukee. I, I don't know exactly where she lived, maybe Indianapolis, one of those northern cities. And, um, and he said, uh, she's, uh, she's coming down to spend uh, a few days with him. Well, it turns out, uh, as the story unfolded over the next 24 minutes, I'm on there for 30, but they didn't start until, but um, uh, that, that these two guys were recently divorced. They worked for the same company here in this town, a very large employer here in Memphis, and they, uh, um, 
they they had they were both divorced just recently or at least one of them was recently divorced and um he was out trying to find a condo and and um you know he put up some money down on this condo and it didn't come through and yeah i had to do that i got a condo over my place when i got my divorce and you know did it, did it, did it, did it. on and on he was going and so and, and then they began to talk about the girl coming down and um and he said a few things that you sure you heard this story andy <laughs> so are your wives <laughs> but um uh the uh, the, uh, the, the conversation really uh, went south about the, the visit of this young woman uh, to this guy. And, you know, they were just talking, about, whoa, 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 you know, and, and um, you know, then, then, of course, he told his story and he told his story. And I'm just <laughs> and, and just um, anyway, they, they were just talking about things that, you know, that you hear a lot uh, men talking about in a locker room. Well, actually, it wasn't a locker room. But in a, anyway, I found myself, as I listened to them, despising them. And um, disgusted. And uh, just, you know, you. Anyway, uh, in a saner, hopefully more spiritual moment, which happened about three weeks later, um, I. I I remembered some things that I think you and I really agree on. You know, what I should be feeling for those guys is simply, you know, fellas, I know what you're after. And you're never going to get it that way. And what I've got, not because I'm smarter or cuter or more intelligent, is better. Um... What we have to offer our culture is better than what they've got. And what I'm suggesting to you, ladies and gentlemen, is um, the thing that those two guys are looking for are the things that we study in this room every week or in this church every week. But having said that, I want to remind you there's a danger because, my friends, we are not here just to study the book of Romans. We're not just studying um, a book of the Bible for information's sake. What God has given us, and, and, and the thing that we have for these two men and, and the rest of our culture, is not just information. We, we don't we're not primarily, the Christian church is not primarily offering a competing philosophy to theirs. We, we don't, we're not, the, the gospel that we preach is not something that just trumpets a, a, a different teacher. What we offer is a new life. A life lived out in relationship to God, the, the, the God who created us. What we offer is a restored, reconciled relationship with the author of life. And I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, in Bible studies, any Bible study, there is a danger that that is forgotten. And what we end up doing is simply walking away with more information, 
more teaching that is quite excellent, I might add, more teaching that, 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 that just stores up in our vast reservoir of theological learning. And Bible studies, this one too, Bible studies present that danger to every listener. Now, let me give you a principle, ladies and gentlemen, uh, a principle that we must, and I don't know why it came up really today, but the principle is when truth is divorced from life, then what you have is not truth in the biblical sense at all. Do you get that? When truth is divorced from life, what you end up with is not biblical truth at all. And that's the danger I'm, I'm, I'm pointing to. I hope that we do communicate vast amounts of biblical truth to you. But the, but the Bible is more than a volume of facts about God. It is, it is a book, basically, and I, and I thought about this a great deal. It's, it's a book that is full of exhortations based on facts about God designed to enable us to live a life that is consistent with the nature of that God. Did you get that? I mean, I thought that was really profound myself. The, 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 the Bible is a book full of exhortation, exhortations that are based upon facts about God, and those exhortations designed to enable us or prompt us to live a life that is consistent with the nature of that God. So when you take those facts and divorce them from the life, you don't have biblical truth at all. You have, you have learning. Learning divorced from life, and the Bible is clear that knowledge puffs up. You know what, ladies and gentlemen? You are not, in essence, better off simply knowing that God created the heavens and the earth. The devil knew that. So did Judas. Theological truth is useless if not obeyed. If it's not, if it's not worked into... Um, life. When, when, I, when I grasp truths about who God is and what He's done, it must overtake my heart and then direct my will. And until it does, all we have is a conservative theology. I love conservative theology, but ladies and gentlemen, that's not what this is designed to do. It is designed to introduce truths about who this God is that overtake my heart and then direct my will, my choices, my behavior. And I want you to know that I fear that, that much of what I teach stops at our intellects only. And that's, some of them, I, I'm to blame. So what I'm going to try to do is work much harder at suggesting certain applications that will grow out of this. I'm going to try to do a better job of, of making sure that, that we don't just study the book of Romans. 
but that I suggest some applications that you might want to think through. Because, ladies and gentlemen, when truth is divorced from life, it's not truth in the biblical sense at all. And so what I want to do is, is, is do a better job at trying to make application for you to think through so that once these truths have been grasped and understood, then they can overcome us at the, at the base of our souls and then drive our wills. And I think that's when, when Bible study is profitable. Let me, let me in, in addition, point out a couple more things, and then I'll, we'll get back to Romans 2. I want you to know that I'm convinced that our most effective tool of evangelism our most effective means of turning this culture on its ear is a lifestyle that adorns that relationship to God that we say we have. We, we become transformers by being transformed ourselves. As this thing remakes us and we bring all of those thoughts in obedience to Christ, as it remakes and transforms us, we then become transformers ourselves. That's how I think the first century church overturned their culture. That's really the that's two that's the two things that I wanted to say. We we're in the culture war and we lost. But don't dismay. The Christian church has always been in a culture war that it was losing. But our job is not simply to sanitize this culture. Our, our job is to remake it, is to transform it. How do you do that? You do that with the knowledge of God, which I think is what's said here in 2 Corinthians 10. But it's a certain kind of knowledge. It's not just garnered facts. It is, is, it's a knowledge that we grasp that overtakes our hearts and then drives our wills. And until that happens, we haven't really studied with profit. Um, one more thought, and then we'll go. The reason that there is a culture, actually, the reason that there was a culture war is that our culture doesn't particularly care for the truths that we believe. We know that. That's, that shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. And our text tonight is a classic illustration of truths that our culture cannot stand. They don't like the theme. And you'll see it in a second. But, and I think you're in agreement here, our, our, our most effective weapon is not some kind of moral outrage. What I want to offer the two guys on the, on the, um, Stairmaster next to me is not simply a higher morality. What I want to offer them is a life. A life that is remade as I understand who God is and, 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 and it remakes me. It is a life transformed by grace and one that is increasingly lived on the truths that we, that we find in this book. That, I think, is how to remake this culture. The war that we fought, we lost. And so if we're ever going to redeem the culture, it's going to be 
as this book remakes us. As it transforms us, we become transformers. Now, having said all that, I, I, I uh, again, why it came on January the 19th, uh, that, I don't know, but uh, there, do with it as you wish. Um, let's look now at the text, uh, verses 2 and 3. And um, again, we won't finish 2 and 3 tonight. In fact, we'll, we'll introduce one theme that is contained in it. And this is the theme, and perhaps you saw it, um, the theme that our culture does not like to hear much about. But we know that the judgment of God <laughs> is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man? You who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God. That's, that's the, the topic that I want us to look at tonight, and then we'll, we'll wrap up with that and then come back to the text next week. I want to remind you that this is the second point in Paul's very lengthy argument. And his argument is designed to convince Jews that they too were under the wrath of God. Um, because, and the point that he makes is that the judgment of God is not like their judgment because man's judgment is never true. It is always flawed, but God's judgment is always according to truth. And that is even something that the Jew would, would argue over because he couldn't imagine that God would judge them. How could he ever judge us? Well, because God always judges according to truth. And if truth requires you to be judged, then that's indeed uh, something that would occur. Now, the, the, the point, and I don't know whether this is application or simply um, uh, doctrinal truth, but all of us have to realize that God judges. And that is an unthinkable thought to some these days, even those who who are come from religious circles. Um, God will judge and must judge. And some of them would suggest that that very idea is repugnant, that, um, that what God was doing at Calvary was announcing that he was nothing but love and that there would be no judgment and that he is ready to overlook sin. But again, this text reminds us that his judgment is according to truth. And what I want to do real quickly in our next 13 minutes is introduce you to um, what the Bible has to say real quickly about God's judging. And the Bible speaks of three kinds of God's judging. I don't think it's necessary for us to take a whole lot of time talking about the, the judgment that God promises that is a final an eternal one, but it's mentioned several times, ladies and gentlemen. Um, for instance, in Matthew 25, beginning at verse 31, you know that scene there where, where the sheep and the goats appear before the judge, and, and he separates the goats to the right and the sheep to the left, or vice versa, and, uh, and, and says, depart from me into the place prepared for you and the, for the devil and his angels. There is a picture, a very lengthy picture, of God's judgment. There is a, a one that is mentioned um, uh, in John chapter 5, a very um, 
um, important statement made by John in, in chapter 5, verse 24 through 30. I want me to read the whole thing. Um, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. And then he goes on to talking about this hour that is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those will hear and live, etc., etc. It's all right there outlined for you. John chapter 5, verses um, 24 through 30. There's another statement in Matthew chapter 7. You know the story about building your house on the rock and building your house on the sand. And, um, and it talks about the storm that is going to come and, and reveal the, uh, what kind of foundation is underneath you. And, and of course, what is that storm? But a, but a picture of this judgment that God is going to bring of a, of a final and eternal nature. I think you know about that one. But let me show you, there's a couple of others that are mentioned in the New Testament. One of them, I, I'm, I'm not sure you've ever really seen. Maybe you have. First um, Corinthians chapter 11, if, you, if you've still got your Bibles up, this will be worth your seeing. Because you hear me uh, mention this every time we have communion. And I, and I say, uh, folks, now, um, don't, don't participate um, if, if there's problems here. If you've been arguing with your wife on the way to church, then you need to not take this morning. You know, you need to settle that first. And let me show you from whence that comes. We're in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse tw uh, 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. You know, ladies and gentlemen, that is what's called a euphemism. Uh, you know what the idea of many sleep? It's not that they're taking extra long naps. It is that God, uh, watching the inappropriate and uh, um, uh, wicked ways in which men participated in this sacrament, took some of their lives. For this reason, many are, some of you are weak and sick, and, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord. Here is a, a, a type of judgment, ladies and gentlemen, to which Christians uh, are, are subject, to which all of God's children are subject. And uh, concerning uh, certain choices and behaviors, we are told that when God judges, He chastens. He chastens because behaviors were inappropriate. And, and you find that idea of chastening again in Hebrews chapter 12, where he says he chastens those that he loves. But in this particular instance, that chastening is brought on because of inappropriate behavior on the part of the people of God in this particular sacrament, the Lord's Supper. And, and I would suggest to you that that, that kind of um, judgment to which the Christian is uh, uh, exposed is not confined to simply this choice, this behavior. But God does um, examine choices and behaviors on, on the part of the Christian. Then there's another that is mentioned, a third judgment. And, you know, every time I show, I mean, if you've never seen this before, uh, people respond rather surprised. I don't know why, but, but they do. Um, 
it's mentioned several times in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, we're told, um, uh, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That, that by the way, that very statement is repeated in Romans chapter 14, 10. Um, it is hinted at in 1 Corinthians 3, um, let me read you verse 13, that talks about each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each man's work, etc. Then there's a text that you've got to take a look at, because if you've never seen this one, this is one you, that I think is so interesting. It's found in the book of Revelation chapter 14. So take a minute and locate Revelation 14. Um, let me read you this one. Let me begin reading at verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. Here's the clause. And their works follow them. Now, do you know what's being described here, my brother and sister in Christ? That is, there is a, there is a moment or a, a period at which you will be judged according to what you have or haven't done. Your works will follow you. You know, and every time I point that out, somebody accuses me of teaching some kind of salvation by works. I'm not saying that, ladies and gentlemen. We are established in a relationship with God through, uh, by grace through faith alone. Surely you know by now that's what it goes deep into my soul. But that does not mean that we as the people of God will not experience the, the scrutiny of God, even in eternity. So, ladies and gentlemen, be, be, be very aware that the Bible does indeed teach that heaven is full of um, varying reward. In fact, one of the statements uh, that is made when uh, Jesus says uh, about John the Baptist, he says, the very least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. What does that imply? If there is a least in the kingdom of heaven, there must be a less least and a more greater, you know? in the kingdom of heaven because your works will indeed follow you. The Bible is clear that there is judgment. There are three kinds of that judgment, and that is something that our culture wants to hear very little of. Now, let me make three kind of closing comments, and hopefully this will stimulate your minds as you consider this one little truth that's uh, contained in Romans chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, and we'll come back and wrap that, those two verses up next week. But um, you must understand that, as a, that I think the, one of the things that we must conclude as a result of understanding that God judges is that moral choices have consequences. And because they have consequences, that, that the whole idea of judgment should fuel your prayer life. By that I mean this. There is no choice that a Christian makes that's not important. 
Well, I shouldn't say that. I mean, I think we can probably pick out between a, a double or a single at Wendy's. Uh, they might not have a whole lot of moral content, but, but choices are, are important, ladies and gentlemen. And I don't know about the rest of you, but I was raised to, you know, to be an, you know, an independent thinking man, you know, and, you know, just kind of trust your, uh, your instincts because you're a man. Well, that kind, of, that kind of posture is very dangerous, ladies and gentlemen. How we raise our kids, where we send them to school, how we spend our money, where we, where we take our vacation, those are important choices. And knowing that our choices have consequences, it ought to fuel a, a more active and eager and earnest prayer life, pleading with God to lead us in the decisions that we make. Now, of course, some decisions don't need much prayer, because the Bible makes it clear you ought not do that. There is never an occasion where you need to pray about whether or not you should steal something. You don't ever need to pray about that. Don't ever pray. It's, it's, that's, but, but gang, our choices are important. And if we understood that there was a consequence to our choices, then, then perhaps it would drive us to our knees more frequently, more often, instead of trusting in the arm of the flesh and our instincts and our intuitions. Maybe we would plead with God to lead us in the kind of choices we make. The second thing that I want you to consider, because of the existence of this judging God, in line with my, uh, my Sunday morning series, forgiveness, ladies and gentlemen, becomes a real possibility. Forgiveness becomes a real possibility because I know that there is a judgment. I don't know how it's going to shake down, and I don't know how God's going to do it. I know this. It'll be according to truth. And because I know there is a judgment, that now releases me to do nothing but forgive. You know, gang, think about this. What if there was no judgment? What if there was no assurances, no, no indication that, that anything was ever going to have any kind of consequence whatsoever? Then maybe we do need to take this matter into our own hands. But knowing that our God judges according to truth, it creates the real possibility of exercising forgiveness. I can let go of it because the judge of all the earth will do right. And I don't have to consider that if I don't take care of this, nothing's going to be done. Well, yes, it will. Because this, this God of ours is, is a scrutinizing, judging God. And whatever your situation deserves, whatever is right and good and faithful and just will occur. Because this God is right and good and faithful and just. And then finally, the, the final thing I'd love for you to think. Uh, if you notice the text, it says um, that, that, that the judgment of God is according to truth. Ladies and gentlemen, if there was ever a, a demonstration and a, a, a proof that truth has to be absolute, it is right here. Truth cannot be relative, ladies and gentlemen. If truth is relative, how is God ever going to judge according to the truth? Because it will constantly be changing on him. The truth... There is an absolute truth. And I'm telling you guys, we are all raising our families in a world gone mad in relativism. 
I think you know that. But here is a statement that says there is a standard, there is a truth, and that truth is the basis and foundation for the inflexible, appropriate, accurate judgments of God. And he judges according to truth. I love that. Um, being one who loves absolutes. I hope those are things that will stimulate your thinking and that they will all overtake our hearts and find their way to our wills. If you need to head to a uh, meeting, it is time to head there now. There's a several meetings going on tonight. The choir's meeting, community missions is meeting, I think. Is there anything else? David, follow that guy in the plaid shirt right there. <clears throat> Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that your word will stimulate us all over again, not simply to be intellectually um, more astute, but it might, it might as, we as we consider these truths, might they become more than just one more fact that we've stored up. Might it be the kind of things that causes us to adjust not only the way we think, but the way we live. Because the great offering that we have for a culture gone mad is a whole new life, a transformed life. And Father, allow us to be transformers in the midst of a world that is hungry for what we have and doesn't even know it. Give us burdens for people who have empty souls and try to fill it all kinds of various ways, just like we used to. But because of Jesus Christ, we have found that the life that he offers is one that is maximized joy. We uh, make our prayer tonight, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody, and good night. <laughs>